Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Devin Dito, along with my co-host, Adrian Guest. And we're back at it again with another fantastic episode for you. And this time we're talking about Black culture. So we're going to take a step back and analyze our culture and really kind of expose the counter narrative that says that Black culture can be harmful. And to help us to talk about this, we're joined today by Miss Rhonda Rashade Penrice. She's an author, historian, journalist, culture critic, and public speaker. And so before we get, begin, besides all of that, there's more about Rhonda that you really need to know. And so she started her educational journey first at Columbia, Columbia University and then went on to New York University and got her graduate degree from the University of Mississippi. So, and then she went on to be an author where she's worked on things such as the African American History for Dummies. Rhonda has been featured in numerous publications such as Ebony, Essence, Vibe, The Griot, The Root, and The Daily Beast. Uh, she's also appeared at events like the National Black Arts Festival and has even be- been featured as a thought leader by McDonald's 365 Black. And as always, we have we try to get someone who knows what they're talking about, and, and she definitely knows knows everything that we need to know about Black culture. So, Rhonda, thank you for joining us on the show. Yeah, well, thank you guys for having me. I do have to make a correction. Ole Miss is still holding my degree hostage. So, oh no, <laughs> yes, ah, another reason not to like Ole Miss. I went to we both went to Mississippi State. So, oh yeah, well, state is a little different. The Bulldogs are a little different. Yeah. But nonetheless, we're here to talk about Black culture. So our first segment is is kind of titled Recognizing Black Culture. And so uh, we really wanted to kind of discuss what Black culture looks like. How did we even get here? Like, how was it formed? And so you've obviously talked a lot about our culture and it had to explain to people what it really is and have to dispel some of these narratives. And so our first question is just kind of really, really general. So when you're talking about Black culture or writing about Black culture what are some of the foundational pieces that you think, in your opinion, have really helped to shape and form, you know, the culture that many of us enjoy today? Well, I mean, you can't even begin to think about Black culture without acknowledging the African diaspora. You know, a lot of times, you know, it was communicated in the past that, you know, Africans who were brought here did not bring their culture. And that is just not true. And though there have, you know, of course, been efforts to eliminate them and, you know, very intensified efforts to eliminate that culture, it was not successful. There are ways in which we don't recognize that we have our culture. Even when you look at different things that are African retentions, when you think about, you know, how Black music is created, or you can look at some blues structure and it correlates with rhythms in Africa. You can look at some of the, you know, foods that, you know, we enjoy and there's a correlation. So there have been strong African retentions. And then, you know, as, as our history continued on in this country, there are certain practices that we picked up and put into kind of that pot as well. So more like, Black culture is an amalgamation of many different things. A lot of people get confused because it is possible for you to be black without being culturally black. And so a lot of people that can, you know, be a red flag to many people because they think that you're saying a person's not black. I've experienced a certain type of black culture and that my family is descended from Mississippi. There are certain practices that I grew up within. And even though I grew up in Chicago, though that culture was consistent. Now you can go to different regions and I've lived in different regions of the country. So I've lived in New York. I've lived in Los Angeles. I live in Atlanta. And like I said, I'm from Chicago with deep roots in Mississippi. So you have as people, there's different cultures like if you grew up in a rural environment, there are certain practices that you have that is not going to be what someone in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles have. And then depending on what areas of the country you come from, it's going to be a little different. So, you know, we acknowledge that, say, when you go to New Orleans, you know, their cuisine is a little different because 
you know, there's water, like even in the state of Mississippi, the people who grew up along the coast or the Mississippi River, you know, there's slightly different things that you eat that people who come from landlocked cultures don't eat. So, I mean, it's it's a very thing. But what we've begun to see is that regardless of where we're from, be it England, be it the continent itself, there are shared practices that people of African descent have. Absolutely. And I think that that speaks a lot to who we are because um, Devin and I, we've talked a lot about black unity globally uh, on that level and that perspective on our show. And when I look at the way people kind of pass judgment on our culture, I, I feel like there's maybe a, misunderstanding or something. For instance, like people hear our lyrics and they think that that's bad lyrics, but they miss a lot of the poetic undertones that our artists are able to kind of put together. Or like even our fashion, some people think it's too bold or too colorful, but they don't understand the complexities of, like you said, infusing African descendants with being American people. And even, you know, I I saw, you know, Jim Jordan saying that it's foolish that we're arguing legislation about our hair without knowing that value that our hair has for us and our identity. So Rhonda, is, is there some sort of, you know, misunderstanding or undervaluing of how deeply rooted our black culture is? Well, I think there's a lot of undervaluing. And then there's a lot of, I guess, asking people to be the same. I mean, there's a lot of diversity within the foundation of black culture. So just because just because, you know, someone may come from the Caribbean and have a different set of practices. Again, at the core, we have certain things that bind us. There seems to be a kind of um, rhythmicness to, you know, our speech patterns, our walk and so forth. Of course, you know, musically, a lot of the music is very similar Then, even in certain dishes. So like you'll say in the South, people may make collard greens. But, you know, you have Kalaloo in the Caribbean. So or you eat certain things like one of the things when I've traveled to the Caribbean um, is seeing people with the pepper jar. And when I was younger, my family in Mississippi, there was always a jar of pepper peppers to, you know, put on your food and so forth. And, you know, even going I've gone to Mozambique, I've gone to Brazil and felt those similarities. Um, so. There is something that kind of unifies us. And there are like different people that you can read, like Paul Gilroy, who does the Black Atlantic. That's a lot of talking about the global diaspora culture. Um, there are like a lot of Zora Neale Hurston's work was, you know, studying and um, really recording what these things are. We have certain things that we don't even know that culture is being passed down to us in the sense of when I was a grad student at Ole Miss in the Southern Studies program, I purchased a book that was um, printed by the um, Negro Universities Press in like, I think it's 1941, because one of the stories in that book, my great aunt used to tell me about the headless man. So you may look at that as something that, you know, maybe she originated, but it showed me that that's a continuation of culture and that certain folk tells, you know, like when people talk about, you know, a Nazi and so forth, there are things that are passed down to us. And even if you read the actual book of The Color Purple, one of the things that um, Alice Walker does in that book is reclaim Black American folklore as being a part of African folklore. And she has this um, exchange where um, Nettie, when she writes letters to Celie, talks about her daughter going into some of the tales that she heard and how she was told the original tales. And Alice Walker is very intentional about that because she grew up in Edenton, Georgia, where Uncle Remus loomed large and Joel Chandler Harris was known for bastardizing Black American folktales. Right. And I think I, you know, the thing I picked up most from what you said is, is we have to understand we're not all the same, even though we may all, all Black people live in this, you know, 
African-Americans living, you know, in the United States and, and in different regions, we all have different, you know, ways that we do things. But that doesn't mean that one way is necessarily better or you're less black because you do it this way. You know, I think we have to get out of that attitude. And we'll talk about that later in the show. But one of the other things I wanted to ask about quickly was just the role of media and entertainment and watching ourselves on television or reading about ourselves in books and plays and things like that. What impact does that have? If any, do you think that that has in reaffirming what black culture is, but also media being sort of a vehicle for pushing some of the negative supposed aspects of black culture where that is portraying us always as the criminal in the story or, you know, so I guess the question is, what impact does media have, you think, in setting or just telling the rest of the world and even ourselves what black culture is supposedly? Well, media is huge. And also it's interesting to me because um, I wrote African-American History for Dummies that was published in 07. Well, last year I did an update of it in Black American History for Dummies, right? So I was like, oh, my goodness, so much has changed in a 15 year, about 15 year span of time. And so at, if you, I don't know if you recall the early 2000s, the whole language around our black colleges were, were they necessary? And now here we are in 2022 and people are like, they are essential. We can't Mm -hmm. let them go. And then there was um, one of the things that was also interesting when I did um, African-American history for dummies in which published in 07, black church, a lot of black people had stopped going to black churches and were going to multicultural churches. You know, if you recall the early 2000s, that was the rise of the Joel Osteens, um, the Paula Whites, and so forth. Well, on the heels of what happened to Trayvon Martin, um, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Black people started going back to black churches. And one of, one of the reasons was given in at least the studies that I read was the responsiveness of standing up, you know, for black people and recognizing that they were under attack, which the other churches just really didn't handle. And unfortunately, regardless of what, you know, parts of the world you come from, anti, anti-blackness anti is a real thing. It exists in every part of the world, even on the continent itself, because people in this country, especially after having roots, people tend to um, romanticize um, the continent as a blank slate without any regards to what the history of colonialism has been. So our general understanding has been that, you know, people were taken from there and that the continent itself was left alone. And that's not true. You had even from, you know, the early um, 17, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, you had this whole like um, Christian um, religious missionary practice and so forth. And I even did a paper when I was an undergrad at Columbia on um, African-American missionaries to Africa, because back then the general, uh, the general mission was to go and kind of civilize these savages and so forth. Right. And that was what the mission was. Well, when black people got there, they couldn't subscribe to that mission because what they found was a culture that was rich, something that they were a part of. So they were not participating in, you know, like if you meet Africans of a certain, um, a certain age, they'll have European names. And so people did not subscribe to that. So, you know, we have generally been under attack all over the globe. You're right. That's something that I have felt like, you know, because we, you know, we we talk so much about you know the double standard. You know we talked you know over in Ukraine how you know Ukrainian refugees have been deemed as white Christians who deserve to be rescued, um, but when it comes to African immigrants, you know it's a double standard. It's you know we we need to treat this a different you know sort of crisis than you know the Middle East or North Africa. So you are absolutely right, or Rhonda. the Haitians, or the Haitians. It, it, 
Exactly. I mean, it's anytime there's people of color involved, some for some reason, the world wants to treat that culture differently. And we're going to dive off uh, into our next segment, listeners, uh, about a little bit of, of, of our culture and how our culture can sometimes impact outcomes and different things like that. So make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give a few dollars while you're at it. After all, the Black Agenda Podcast is supported by listeners like you. Now let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. We're getting into our second segment here. Remember, we've we've got Miss Rhonda Rache Penrice, author, historian, journalist, cultural critic, and public speaker. And our second segment, listeners, it's about our culture and how our culture uh, influences outcomes or in my first question, how something else might influence those outcomes. So I was doing a little bit of research, Rhonda, and on census.gov, it reports that non-Hispanic whites have consistently been underrepresented among the population in poverty, while blacks and Hispanics have always been overrepresented. You know, we kind of know that Asians have been underrepresented in poverty in the last 20 years. So it's a lot of stats where whites, you know, make up a lot of population, but they're not the ones that are in poverty. Like we are people of color. And I was even listening uh, on a podcast where someone made a comment about structural racism and basically said, it's kind of a yes or no scenario in America that, you know, maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't. And obviously there's outliers in all minority groups, but it just seems like people of color, whether it be black, white, Hispanic, Latina, doesn't matter, are at a disadvantage when it comes to being in America. So Rhonda, you know, does that mean it's, you know, people of color's culture that sets them up for failure or how do we make sense of all of that? Well, institutional racism was set us up for (laughs) failure. I mean, you can't, I, I mean, this country was not built for you. This country, especially with black people, even as even as you have people that celebrate the, you know, 4th of July and particularly the Declaration of Independence, you know, that's a document declaring that, you know, white men in particular be free when you had um voting was initially for white men who had property, then with Andrew Jackson extended to white men. But, and then, you know, even when you have black, you know, well, black men getting the vote after the civil war. So from the very beginning, you know, we're living in a country with a foundation that has generally excluded a large number of us. And it was not really like when you have, um, Latinos and Asians coming into the pot, you know, the whole general idea of the United States was to welcome Europeans, not to welcome other people. So in the foundation, and whereas we might not be the majority of people who are impoverished, you know, people of color in general, Black people specifically, uh, we have a higher percentage of people who are impoverished. And a lot of it, like in this day and age, we have to also challenge ourselves in what we think racism is. And for me, I get annoyed because people interpret racism, not that it's okay, as, you know, people calling you out your name or even with hate crimes, but institutional racism happens to you every day. As a black person from the time of birth, the majority of black children will be born in hospitals that are not as well capitalized as hospitals that are in majority white neighborhoods. Your property value, regardless of how nice your home is, how big your home is, what amenities it has, if you live in a predominantly black area, it will not be worth as much as homes, even a a smaller home in a predominantly white neighborhood. Those are the kinds of assaults that happen to us every single day. And those, and those things require legislation and structural um, change. The whole system needs to be redesigned. Absolutely. And that's why I wanted to kind of make sure to frame our second, our second segment around that with that context in mind, just because I think, yes, it's easy to say, because I've, I've, you know, growing up in Mississippi, being around, you know, certain 
groups of white people, um, you, you get told certain things and it's easy for them to say, well, you know, my family did this and did that. You know, I went to school and I'm paying my bills. What, you know, why does, you know, cause I had, you know, one story from one of my coworkers was that, you know, he was, you know, a door to door salesman or maybe an installer for direct TV, I think is what he was doing. And he went to a, you know, a black, you know, apartment building and he got mad because like everybody in the apartment building wasn't, you know, working an eight to five job. They were on government assistance and he felt that it was so wrong that he had to go and work, you know, to make up for all of that. And I'm just like, I get where you're coming from, but there's a lot of reasons to why, you know, our people are plagued that way to the fact that those people that you're talking about, they probably didn't even have good schools to go to. They, they may not have had a parent to graduate high school to give them those opportunities. So that's why I wanted to make sure listeners, we start this second you know, segment with that context in mind. So thank you, Rhonda, for- But, it, but it's uh, for, even deeper than that. When you have Black people have- been deprived of wealth, period. So when you talk about slavery, you're talking about people who were worked sun up and sun down and robbed of being paid. They were robbed of wages. So when you're coming into, you're coming into a system of today, people think the past doesn't have any bearing. Those things still exist. The fact that you still have a black person doing the same job is still underpaid in comparison to a white person doing the same job. And a lot of times the thinking is because you're getting paid more than the average black person that you should be satisfied to be underpaid. And so there is so much that we have we have to readdress, especially in the South, where when you see the same, a lot of times, the same white people who were wealthy during enslavement are still well to do today. And that is not okay. No, it's not. I mean, it still highlights the challenges we have, which is why we're, you know, Congress is discussing, I think California is discussing reparations. I mean, that's why those conversations are, are happening now, because we need to redress and fix some of the problems that uh, the country has chronically ignored. So well, the problem with those discussions is those discussions are usually um, result in programs. Like, for example, in Evanston, when you heard that Evanston, Illinois was having reparations, it sounded good. And I was excited about it. But mm-hmm. subsequently, digging deeper, it's only for, you know, certain black households. And on top of that, the bank, it's it's like twenty five thousand dollars to um, put into your home improvement and so forth. But the bank has to approve what contractors, and of course, the banks that are doing the approving are white ran banks. The p- people that they're probably going to um, approve are white contractors. So in the end, what is supposed to be restorative justice to black people does not end up benefiting black people very much. Right. And I think that's part of the conversations. And I understand the, the point because we've had, you know, these discussions as far as reparations and what form it comes in. Right. You've been had an episode talked, this season. <laughs> right. We, we, you know, we talked about Evanston and what they were doing and because we had to dig into it because you see the headline says, you know, city approves reparations. You got to go deeper than that. Same thing that Asheville, North Carolina did. They had they approved reparations, but it's going to be in the form of programs. And so people get in an uproar when you talk about should it be a check or should it be programs? I mean, why can't it just be both? It, it needs to be holistic and not just giving you money to get a house, but it could be credit repair. It could be a host of other things, education included in that, because it, that's not the injustice wasn't just stopping you from getting a house. Oh, it was yeah. a host of other issues. That went into leading up to you not getting that house. And so the the solution should be just as large as the problem uh, that that created the situation we're in. And so uh, a lot of that, I think the, the conversation we have about our culture can sometimes put us at a disadvantage because people have preconceived notions of what it means to be black. And they they pull up the negative parts of our culture to use that as a way of denying us certain things. And so one of one part of our culture is the music. And we touched on it earlier. In particular, rap music is is sort of controversial because in one way, the country loves it. They want to dress up as rappers. They want to wear the jewelry. They want to do all that. 
but they don't want to be that person that has to deal with the aspects that come with being a black person. And even New York mayor Eric Adams wants to ban rap music now. And so these conversations are having are happening right now. So I wanted to ask you, like, when you hear people talk about, like, we need to get rid of rap music, they're not talking about white people. They're talking about black people and the music that we're making. So where do you fall in these conversations with people who think certain parts of our culture are harmful to our youth, like the music? Like, where do you fall in that conversation? Well, I'm very pro hip hop. So, I mean, I, I worked at a hip hop magazine. I've written for hip hop magazines. I've like participated in um, scholarly works on hip hop. And um, recently I submitted an article because a lot of the conversations that people are having today about um, white supremacy and institutional racism and mass incarceration or even the imbalance of, you know, teaching black history in the school systems, those things are found in hip hop. When you talk about now we have people talk about racial profiling, but when you think about LL Cool J at the height of his career doing a song like Illegal Search, hip hop has definitely been on the forefront of bringing a lot of the societal ills to the forefront. And these issues would not be there for a lot of people were it not for this music. You have people who listened to Public Enemy back in the day and went and purchased books and started reading on this. They listened to KRS-One and BDP and, you know, went and started talking about these things. Or I was at um, something many, many years ago where they had Mandela Day and Queen Latifah spoke and she said, because of hip hop, I knew what apartheid was. And that brought me into this kind of global awareness of, you know, black people being subjugated. I mean, I'm of course paraphrasing her, but, um, but so hip hop, there is a power in it. And when you look at how it's used in other countries, like I was watching revolt TV a few months ago and they had, they were in Kenya and they were talking to Kenyan rappers who use their art form in order to inform their fellow Kenyans what was going on in the political system. So there is a power in it that people do not um, want to um, be exercised and, you know, to have people impacted by it. Now, what's elevated a lot of times, or, you know, you have to radio friendly and, um, Radio friendly and hip hop culture are two different things. So now you have the inability and even in radio, you have people that have to play the playlist when in the past you had people who could play whatever they wanted, which meant that it wasn't necessarily what was going to be on the music charts. So, I mean, I, I think that hip hop, but I mean, hip hop does just like any other thing, when you talk about any other art form, there's positive and negatives to all of them. But overwhelmingly, the impact of hip hop has been positive. And you can see in the wake of George Floyd, when you have rappers like Lil Baby, you know, who go off a script of what they've rapped about in the past and do songs like The Bigger Picture and so forth. Like hip hop is a big response mechanism to what's going on in the world. And you have a lot of times when you're talking about rappers, they come from still, still come from socioeconomic conditions where they can speak on this. Still, a lot of rappers come from public schools. So they are speaking on their experiences of that. Now we do have, we have a change in culture in the sense that Black people, for the first time, are really having a youth culture. And so when I would say that in the 90s about the development of youth culture, when you really look at the 1950s, 60s, someone who was 15 years old, you were a grown person. You were not a child. A lot of times you had people who had whole jobs. They had families and kids. They had the support. Now we're in a different age where you have a 
you know, people were always going to go out and enjoy themselves. But, you know, we have like this kind of celebration of a drug culture or even some of the things that have been in mainstream culture that in years past may have been something that we weren't generally thought to participate in. So now you have this kind of messaging, but the benefits are still there where at the end of the day, you still have a lot of people responding to racial subjugation and oppression. No, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, I asked, I asked the question not so much to say that we should get rid of rap music, but I think people need the explanation to understand the role that rap music has in our in our culture. Like you say, it's sort of a response mechanism to show what's really going on in our neighborhoods. And I I, I understand that point of it, but I do, there are a lot of people outside the culture. So we under, we have to understand we're not just talking to black people when we speak on these shows. We're talking to, to those outside our culture. And so some of those people may look at us and say, well, your music is, is telling you to only twerk and only be a, you know, a gangster and only shoot each other. It, it, it seems like that from the outside looking in. And even some people in our culture will say that those aspects now are in the hands of kids who have cell phones that are able to watch these things over and over the research does not say that they necessarily translate to action, but nonetheless, the perception is there that it yeah, is. Yeah, but the, that perception is going to be there whether there's music there or not. If you you have people who can listen to certain songs and not even get the other messages, so the fact that you have people that only reduce hip hop music to twerking and so forth, it shows that you do not listen to hip hop music. You A lot of times what those people are responding to, in my opinion, is listening to what's the hits, what's played on the radio. They're not listening to people's full albums. They're not listening to what people are actually saying or even... Or even there are so, so many songs because you have a sing-song pattern and it's easy to listen to, people don't really listen to the words. How many times have black people and white people seen the exact same thing and the way we see it is not the same as the way they see it? Right. I mean, it happens all the time. And I I think that a lot of people, like the issue is that a lot of people reflect to certain artists, you know, like, you know, WAP from Cardi B or certain songs, and different things like that. And they, like, I, I know that there are certain artists, like even uh, Nicki Minaj, we reported on how she had a change of heart with using explicit lyrics when she became a mother. And I get that there are certain, you know, people who might go towards that realm more, but I like how you talked more about the essence of what rap and hip hop is, because it's like, yeah, you could look at, you know, country and rock and metal and you could pick apart, you know, a lot of things where I think, you know, metal heads might be more into drugs and violence. And because, I mean, that's what I that's whatever I think of metal music. That's what I think about as well. So it's just like I think it's so easy to generalize, you know, you know, sex of music based off of, you know, whatever you think is the most obscene or the most out there because it's easy to do that versus your LL Cool J's and your ice cubes who are talking about it being a good day in LA or whatever. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a really, really interesting situation, but what we're going to do listeners, um, we're going to get into our third segment. Uh, we're going to give you a break though, but our third segment is always a good one to reinforce things. So make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the black agenda podcast. We appreciate your support, and we ask that you like, share, and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, IG, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our third segment here. Remember, we're joined today by Rhonda Roche Penrice. 
She's an author, historian, journalist, cultural critic, and public speaker. And like I said, listeners, this third segment is to reinforce, and I didn't let you know what we're reinforcing, but we're reinforcing Black excellence within our culture here. Uh, Rhonda, I had a conversation with the white affluent male. I, I wanted to make it sound educational when I framed it, and he felt like there are certain elements within our community that are more common within our community. And for the context of this conversation, let's just say that, you know, to him, that these were part of our culture, like, you know, being, you know, more single parent homes, lower marriage rates, you know, interest in marijuana and sports versus investing in real estate. I think, and we've talked about on our show, how the trauma of our history is really forced, um, that, that was forced on by government really affected our people. In order for us to really, I guess, work towards black excellence, do you think it's going to take government intervention to kind of right some of these wrongs to get our culture on the right track? Well, I mean, now it's interesting how people frame now that there are white women that are that are not married, they are choosing to be unmarried. And there is a more positive spin put on that. But with black (laughs) women who were unmarried, and a lot of times, we forget that, you know, if Sean Bell was killed, then that left a child that didn't have a father. So you have some people that are single parents because they've been forced to be single parents and so forth. But ultimately, when we have conversations like that, it obscures the fact that, you know, again, Black people on average are underpaid than their white counterparts. Black people on average are blocked from certain revenue sources than white people. All of these things that are pointed to as external things as what the outcomes or what realities are, people don't go and do the digging and see what responsibility or what role institutionalized racism, discrimination has played in especially when you talk about the economic conditions. And if you have a black person that typically a black person that has a position in anything has had to be better, more prepared than the average white person, because you don't get that pass. I remember years ago, and a lot of your listeners probably don't even know who Cheryl Miller is, but when Cheryl Miller was playing basketball and she was um, one of, she's one of the greatest you know, basketball players ever, her father, she talked about her father telling her, you can't be just as good as the white players because you'll be on the bench. You have to be better just to even get on the court. And sadly, you know, people will say that's no longer true. It still is. When you look at the NFL, Mike Tomlin is the winningest coach in the NFL history. He has never had a losing season and he still has his job, but you can point to other NFL clubs where coaches get a chance, chance after chance in other organizations, and they don't have to be above board. They don't have to be history makers to keep their position. So those things. And to piggyback or dip back to when we're talking about media, imagery, definitely, I mean, media, magazines, radio, TV, they have been used against us, books. One of the things that Ralph Ellison wrote was how books have been used against Black people, that when you read about yourself, you don't even recognize who that person is because it's not you. When you have, like... A lot of times you have like even when you have black history stories, like people go, oh, I don't want to see slave movies or different things. A lot of times when you're looking at movies, even movies that are supposed to be about all the great things that black people have done, there is that white person who's centered in it. So our narratives are always disrupted. And what's confused a lot of times was confused as black content or is actually race content. So you have a lot of racialized projects so that white people are centered. And for me, a lot of times I don't write for a lot of mainstream publications because I'm not interested in writing about race. I don't write about race. I write about black culture. And it's a huge difference between that, those two. Very much, very much. And I, and I agree with 
you know, everything you said, especially, you know, Mike Tomlin and, and the problem that we have with the media, I can't remember his name, but there was an author I saw at a round table and he said that, you know, black people have been the victim of the greatest PR campaign in history because for decades, years, I mean, the narrative that was spun through, you know, books and plays, movies, you name it, whatever media source was available, it was used as a tool to distort the image of black people and what our culture was um, in all sorts of negative ways. And we are still trying to shed a lot of those stigmas. But I do think there is a segment of our, our community that has in some ways internalized a lot of those things, the negative parts they've seen in the media, and they're starting to, I want to say starting to, but some of them do mimic some of the things that they see in the movies, they think we're supposed to be the criminals in every situation or that it's a bad thing if you're doing well in school and not athletically. Like we celebrate our athletic accomplishments of our students and not so much the academic ones. That's not across the board. That's a generalization. But in our own culture, I feel like at times there's a competition to see who can exhibit the most negative parts of our, of our culture by sagging your pants and and not doing well in school. And so um, the question is just, like I say, it's not everybody, but obviously we have some things that we could do better. Every culture does, but we're talking about sagging your pants though. Like it's a part of cultural expression. Like for me, when you look at when early on, when you look at hip hop, all it's saying when you see rappers dressed a certain way, all it's saying is I don't work a nine to five. Just like like Duke Ellington, they may have been more more aesthetically pleasing to see them in a suit. But the reality of their time is that most black people were laborers and didn't wear a suit. So you are suited and booted to show that you don't work that kind of job. It's the same kind of thing when we're talking about cultural expression. And of course, people are going to internalize messages that are projected to them um, over and over again. They're being indoctrinated into that. But that's why it's very key that, you know, we're on the offensive in teaching kids what our culture and history is. And now we have this kind of competition between education and athletics because that's set up by the general society. What what happened to the idea that you could be a black person that is athletically great, socially adjusted, and great in academics? If you look at black men, particularly who are judges who are whatever they started out they went to college on athletic scholarships like even brian gumble who does real sports on hbo went to school on a baseball scholarship so athletics has been a way to access education for black people and and i and i get that point i think the question i had was yes you know there is a competition between athletics and education i think it's always going to be there because we tend to excel in, in athletics more than other groups. But, you know, I don't disagree with that point, but I do think <laughs> there are some aspects of our culture where when it comes to education, because we just had, you know, a member of the school board on the show, and she mentioned the fact that parents aren't the same parents as they used to be. And so we have work to do, and she's in a predominantly black school district. And she it was Memphis. Memphis. So mm-hmm. she's she's saying that she's seeing this firsthand that there are things that we could work on when it comes to being involved in our kids' education and making sure that they prosper and and do well in school. And I do know, even from our own experiences in going to school, that sometimes when you exhibit high accomplishment, getting A, speaking a certain way, that is somehow looked at as you exhibiting white qualities rather than you just being a good person and being smart in school. Well, for me, that culture needs to change because that was not my educational experience at all. I grew up in, um, even when I was a a young person, where my first educational experiences were in Mississippi, because I could read at age three, a way was made for me to go to school at age three. When coming from Chicago, I was in a program called the Language International Studies Program, where we were a group of 90 students who came into a high school and went there for 7th through 12th grade. My high school was about 60% 
black with the next biggest group being white and being in the top 10 of your class scoring well. And also we had guys who were in these special classes who were also the star of the basketball team, also the star of the football team. So that is about culture. And people also talk about how parents aren't what they used to be. Educators aren't what they used to be either. My mother was an educator. So we, we're not going to get anywhere spreading blame. If you have a solution, implement the solution, teach to the best of your ability. There are some Sometimes a parent can't tell you where to go because they don't know you can go there, but a teacher knows it because a teacher has been exposed to more. I I completely agree. I think that a lot of, um, and I think that it also can be depending on where you are. I, I, you know, I was definitely told that, you know, I was white. Uh, I was, you know, sound like even on the phone, people hear me and think that I'm a white person or, or whatever the case, but even seeing me, it's like, it's one of those things to where, you know, I, I can definitely uh, attest to more in line of what Devin went through. Uh, and like I said, it's definitely one of those other things. But I wanted to kind of make sure um, to, I guess, bridge the gap in between what y'all were talking about, because it reminded me of something that Devin mentioned in providing uh, some context to why we were preparing this episode. And it was almost a- along the lines of how elements of our black culture um, can sometimes be um, uh, penalized. And you kind of talked about that, Rhonda, with sagging pans and how that's an expression of our culture, but how our society penalizes part of our culture. So it's it's just really interesting to see that. And I wanted to make sure, um, as we kind of round off our, our third segment, um, I think that there's so much in that what you said, thinking of the, to me, I think of the reverence of our culture and how, to me, when you think about internalizing those messages, the messages that I saw growing up in Eupora was just that there was a lot of minorities that were disadvantaged uh, and that there were a lot of people in power who weren't doing anything. And it made me want to internalize that to say, I have a right, a purpose, uh, almost, you know, a duty to be better and to kind of have a lifestyle and to set goals beyond that. And that's not to say that if someone doesn't do that, maybe they are influenced in a different way from their surroundings and their culture where they want to do something differently. I think that at the end of the day, a lot of people are misunderstanding, as you said in the beginning of the episode, Rhonda, that there's so many different elements of blackness and black culture and who we are. Uh, and it can't be just summed up into one thing. So uh, what we're going to do, listeners, we're going to take our last break with Ron. Then when we come back, we got to get a final message, a good way to make sure that we end our episode on a good note for you to have something as a call to action. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to a scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, become a monthly patron. Go to blackagendapod.com and click the donate tab or click donate under the timestamps as you're listening to the podcast. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, let's get into it here. We're at our final message where we have been joined today by Rhonda Roche Penrice, author, historian, journalist, culture critic, and public speaker. And to set the stage, Rhonda, for your final message, you know, I know we've, I just said that black culture is many, many things, but whenever I think of the one thing that black culture is, I think of resilience. Um, I think back to our ancestors who were forced into slave labor, not even considered a person, but how they held on to traditions. You know, our pioneers who were the first in medicine, education, politics, even our people who were hosed and attacked by dogs, how they kept on marching towards justice. And even just recently, how you talked about it with George Floyd, how our people continually to be gunned down more often by the people who are supposedly supposed to protect us. But we don't give up hope. We don't give up faith. Yet with all these negative stereotypes and negative things that we've talked about with our community, you know, these things that I just mentioned, they don't get resonated. All of the negative stuff like the sagging pants or the unemployed, all these other things. So with the embodiment of resilience, and all the things that we've discussed, how do we get that to be the resounding anthem of our people and not these negative stereotypes? 
Well, the more that you read, the more that you uncover the truth of what, you know, our history and our culture is in this country. You can't help but to uncover that. Like for me in studying black history, um, you know, there is a lot of pain and trauma in it, but it's a lot of triumph. When you think about like I was watching um, Apple TV has um, this docu-series called Lincoln's Dilemma, but in it, Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass is very um, center in it. He is very central to the narrative. And so Jelani Cobb says, when you think about Frederick Douglass, if he had been able to just read and write, that was already winning. But not only did he learn to read and write, he became one of the greatest orators in our nation's history, when you really look at things in the context of that, when you really look at things in the way in which the odds are stacked against us. Like for me and my family, my grandfather grew up in Mississippi. His family was a family of sharecroppers. By the time my grandfather died in 2002, my grandfather had purchased 200 acres of land of his own. We, My family lives on 30 acres of land. So when I look at, if I want an example of what greatness is, I look in my own family because I see what my family has overcome. And a lot of us have those stories too, but we don't recognize it as such. We don't recognize, like, for example, I've worked in my house as a writer for most of the time not going outside of the home for at least 20 years. I didn't realize until I was interviewed a few years back that my grandmother earned money in her household. She sewed, she kept children, but because it doesn't look a way in which we, the outside culture is telling us it should look, a lot of times we even devalue what those things are. Like I think about even in car culture, like hip hop, when black when black guys were putting TVs in their cars and stuff, that was ghetto and hood. And now that's a standard feature in the automotive community. When you have I remember being in New York when Jamaican women or other Caribbean women were wearing purple and blue hair and had long nails. They were called hood and ghetto. And now these things are acceptable in mass culture. So a lot of the things, it's not, it's the way in which it's being presented to you. But a lot of the great things that we do are consistently devalued. So if you're looking for mainstream culture for a picture of you, you're not going to find it because it's not built that way. Right. I think that's the challenge that we'll probably always have in this particular country because you know, and in a lot of ways, we still have a lot of work to do when it comes to controlling what we see on television and what our children are watching. And we have to be in the process in those rooms when those shows are written, those movies are created, those books are written. We have to be in those rooms to be able to say, hey, this is not what black culture is. Or we don't have to penalize this just because you're not familiar with it. You know, we have to be in those rooms to make those decisions. And I think we're getting closer there to that. But we there's a lot of work to do to counter these narratives. And that's why it's always good to reach back to the, you know, not reach back. Really. Yeah. Reach back to the, the generation that's coming up behind us and letting them know who came before them. Like these are some people who went on to do some incredible things that you may not know about. Like we had an entire episode in, in February, just about uh, black inventors and, and folks who were in medicine and, and all sorts of industries who did amazing things that we did not learn about in school. And it's a tragedy that we're not getting there, that we're not getting that knowledge and our students aren't getting that. But that's because likely the folks who write the textbooks and make the curriculum don't really care about teaching black history properly. So that in a lot of ways, we have to fill in the gaps in our own ways. And so that's why we have the show, but also why we have people like you to come on and, and explain our culture and how the things that we do are penalized in a larger in the larger society at first, but then they in, end up adapting it anyway, you know, and they, and they're able to do it freely without the stigmas and the stereotypes that come along with it that we had to experience. So I think it's an important conversation, but we have a long way to go to be able to shed a lot of the negative 
stereotypes that are out there. And also when we talk about who's in the writer rooms and so forth, just being black is not enough. You have to be educated as well. You have a lot of, I mean, for me, I do a lot of work with the African Film Critics Association and the Black Women Film Network. You have a lot of people, if your concept of of um, storytelling is that you want to be the Quentin Tarantinos and you want to be this or whatever, or you want to tell, or like a good example is the miniseries them. There are just certain stories. You cannot plug black people into a narrative framework that is not even, has not even been created to include us. There are certain things you have to understand and you have to like educate yourself. Being black is not enough. Like with everything, there's a history and a culture and it behooves you to be a person who is steeped in that. If this is what you're doing, you're specifically trying to create things that are going to be more helpful than harmful for a long time in our in our shows and so forth, this concept of generic blackness was okay. Like, you know, whereas if you look at shows with white people, if you were from Boston, you had a certain accent, the people from California were very distinctive, but black people were the same all across the board. So when you had an actor that was in the South, they were speaking like they were still in New York. And so now that we're moving into this era of streaming where we're having more projects, we're seeing a more complicated portrait of who we are. And we're seeing things that can be very specific while also serving us as a uh, also bringing us together as a general community, but saying, hey, you know, they may do this a little differently in Louisiana. They may do this a little differently in Chicago, but at the end of the day, it's still all black people. Absolutely. And that's what it really comes down to. It's about our blackness, black unity, black excellence, and really exemplifying that and understanding what our culture is. Uh, and it was even funny when we got ready to plan this episode, we reached out to Dr. William Darity, uh, and he, uh, he said he was kind of baffled by the question about how black culture can be harmful just because he's like, I don't you know, think black culture is harmful. And I responded with him, uh, letting him know neither do we. Um, but it's more or less, um, being from Mississippi, um, playing into, uh, a, I guess into a, a listenership that's more than just black America. We like to take it upon ourselves, listeners, to give you something that is a little bit outside of the box, uh, sometimes more journalistic, sometimes more uh, of a counter narrative than something that we would normally do where we talk about legislation uplifting the black community, um, but something to um, look at our culture, check ourselves, exemplify who we are, and correct others on what we stand for. So, Rhonda, before we let you go, would you please let our listeners know, how can they follow you? Well, I'm on Instagram and um, Twitter at um, at R-O-N-D-A-R-A-C-H-A, Rhonda Roche. So, definitely hit me up there. You can get, um, I have my book, Black American History for Dummies, is on like Amazon, Target, Barnes and Noble, and so forth. And I'm also an, the editor of a book called um, Cracking the Wire During Black Lives Matter, which is, um, I have 11 uh, essays, well, 11 people contributing um, essays discussing different aspects of The Wire, which celebrates his 20th anniversary, the 20th anniversary of his premiere this year. Awesome. Awesome. Well, hey, listeners, make sure you go check all of that out. Remember that today we've been talking with Miss Rhonda Roche Penrice. She is an author, historian, journalist, cultural critic, and public speaker. Rhonda, it has been a very, very enlightening conversation about who we are looking at it more than just a one culture, but a multitude of people, multitude of different things. So we appreciate you giving us that context. Well, thank you guys for having me. This has been wonderful. Continue doing Absolutely. what you do. Absolutely. So listeners, what we're going to do, we're going to let Rhonda go. Uh, Dev and I, we're going to come back with our ending. So make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. Yeah.
absolutely appreciate your support. You are the foundation and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So let's go ahead and wrap up the show here and let you know what is coming up here on the Black Agenda Podcast. So first up, you can look forward to hearing me and Adrian again this Saturday, April 16th. That'll be weekly roundup number 13. Uh, Again, if you don't know, the weekly roundup is our chance to bring you news from across the world uh, and even here at home. It's funny. It's educational. It's informative. So make sure you tune in this Saturday, April, April 16th for weekly roundup number 13. And coming up after that, coming up next Tuesday, April 19th, a week from today, that'll be our next regular episode. We've got something special for you in store. So make sure you tune in for that Um, again. That's Tuesday, April 19th. That'll be our next regular episode. So make sure you tune in for another fantastic conversation featuring both me and Adrian as usual. We may have someone else on the show with us, a special guest or a special topic. We're not going to say what it is just yet. We're going to keep that close to our hearts and show it to you on Tuesday, April 19th. So make sure you tune in for that. That's our next regular episode. And so also what you can do in between hearing me and Adrian here on Saturday and on Tuesday you can help us out by giving us a little bit of money. I know tax time is almost over. If you haven't filed your taxes, you're getting very close to the deadline. So why don't you go ahead and make a last-minute donation here to the Black Agenda, which can help you on your next year's taxes. Um, and Ada's going to let you know how you can save a little bit on your taxes by giving to us. <laughs> I like that. That's a, that's an awesome lady. And I was going to say something about, you know, if you need another reason, I'm going to law school and, you know, we can, you know, use that. Maybe we could be like Black Lives Matter and funnel some money into some things that we're not supposed to use it for. But, <laughs> wow. but I wow. just, I'm just, I'm just teasing, you know, Hey, you know, that's, that, that tease could be literal. You'll see, but let's get to what we're actually talking about. Yeah. I'm, I'm good. Devin. I, I can work oh it in there. Goodness. Uh, <laughs> see, listeners, you don't know, but Devin knows, but what you do know about is the vision that Devin and I have, you know, if you have been someone who's listening to us, um, well, there's been a couple episodes or you've been listening to us from the beginning. You know about the vision that Dev and I have about what we're going to do. And in case you don't know, we're going to be the next BET. We're going to be bigger than that because we're going to have more. Eh, let's just say that. But we can't get there without you. You know, I, I'm manifesting it. And I'm saying it, put, putting it out there into the universe, speaking into existence. And it's going to happen with you. Um, and how you do it right now is just go to our website, just blackagendapod.com, or you listen to the episode, just scroll down in the timestamps. There's a donate tab right there. When you get to either of those, it's going to take you to our Patreon page where you'll be able to donate on a monthly basis and you get something from us. There's a bunch of things like shout outs. You can even advertise on our show by being a monthly patron. So make sure you go to our website. Again, that's blackageandapod.com or scroll down in the timestamps and click the donate button and start giving. The other thing that we like to do, pay it forward. I mean, that's a great thing. We talk about that so much with Black Unity. And for the month of April, remember, it's Financial Awareness Month, Financial Literacy Awareness Month, actually. And we're talking about Operation Hope. Their focus is financial dignity and inclusion. They have so much coaching for young people and adults to really help them with their personal aspirations and life challenges. And they're working to move away from just silver civil rights to silver rights to make sure that we talk about uh, enterprise and capitalism for those who are underserved. So like I said, check them out. Operation Hope, uh, all about financial awareness literacy. Exactly. So make sure you check them out. Give to us, give to Operation Hope. And like I said earlier, it could help you out on your 2022 taxes <laughs> as a cash donation. So even more incentive, If not, not that you needed more reason to give, but we're just giving you a little extra on top there. Um, but before we go, we want to let you know you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our handle is at Black Agenda Pod. And again, that's at Black Agenda Pod. So make sure you go follow us 
on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and keep up with us when we're not here bringing you the facts on the Black Agenda Podcast. Um, the other place where you can keep up with us is blackagendapod.com forward slash news. So if you go there, you will find plenty of articles that have been written by our really talented interns here at the Black Agenda Podcast. So make sure you check that out. Go to blackagendapod.com forward slash news. You'll find all sorts of articles on a range of topics, not just, um, you know, criminal justice system or environment. We cover the bases here as we always try to do. So make sure you check it out. Blackagendapod.com forward slash news. And so we want to give one last shout out to our guests from today's show. Uh, Miss Rhonda Rache Penrice. She was awesome. We had a, a great conversation. And as always, we try to educate the folks on what's going on. And in this case, we were discussing black culture. So and it was an awesome conversation. So and we want to thank you listeners for sticking with us. We'll be back on Saturday, April 16th to bring you weekly roundup number 13. So until then, we'll catch you next time. Thank you.